it's been a few weeks since I've given a sermon. I hope I remember how to do this. Um, be kind. A couple things before we jump in. So first of all, today is a big day for people who are into football. Who's excited about the Super Bowl? Okay. How many of you are excited about the football game? Wow. Okay. How many of you are excited about the commercials? Who's excited about the halftime show? Yes. Who's excited to see what new ground has been broken and what you can do with Velveeta cheese yeah. since last year? Anybody else just like, give me all the Velveeta. Um, well, however you celebrate, if you don't celebrate, it's, it's a super day. Um, so when you came in, um, there's a table back there. Uh, I wrote a devotional for um, Abingdon Press. For It's essentially mainly, uh, they're, they're used in the United Methodist Church for the season of Lent, which begins on Ash Wednesday, February 22nd. So we have copies of these available if you'd like to take one. Um, if you're online and you would like a copy, there are two things. We could mail you one or we have a digital download we can send you. If you just send an email and ask for it, we can send it right back so our online community gets included as well. Um, this is not great. Uh, groundbreaking and it's not going to change the world. I just want to go ahead and throw that out. They are 250 word, that's the limit for each one, including the scripture reference. But it's just essentially something to give you, uh, if you're looking for something daily to do to kind of maybe get your mind going or just to reflect on scripture in the season of Lent, um, that hopefully that will be helpful if that's a thing you're interested in. Um, and then today, I'm so excited because we are starting a new series. And I, I've had such a great time over the last few weeks having friends in town who have done such a beautiful job. Um, but there's this thing that happens to you, um, or at least happens to me as a, as a preacher, speaker person. And that is, I get so excited about having some Sundays off. And then I'm like sitting there going, I wish I was up there, um, which has been happening. So I'm so excited. I'm excited to preach. I'm excited for this series um, because for so many of us, we have been going through all kinds of faith transition and faith shift and change. And what happens when you, and some people call it deconstruction, some people call it like a faith shift or an unraveling of faith. Um, but what tends to happen is everything gets a little, and this is a technical theological term, discombobulated. Um, and when that happens, you don't really know which way is up and you don't know what you believe anymore. And so when you're going through this process, some things become really, really kind of muddy. Like what do we think about prayer? Or what do we do with the Bible? Or what do we do with certain particular seasons and holidays? Or what do we do with this particular theological thing? But what we don't often pay attention to is that there's kind of a really central thing that gets a little muddy. And that is, what do we do with Jesus? Right? Because for lots of us, we still identify in some way as, as Christian, as progressive Christian, as Christian adjacent or something. Like we're still hovering around the Jesus thing. And yet for me, this happened very early on, about 20 years ago when I started this process. I had no idea, what do I do with Jesus now? Because there was something about Jesus that I, I found compelling and convicting and transformative, but I didn't exactly know what I should do with Jesus. And Jesus is kind of central to Christianity. Or maybe, he, maybe he's not and he should be. Can we make that? Like, like maybe Christianity, actually Jesus is no longer, like the person, the, the historical person of Jesus and what he was like is no longer maybe really central for lots and lots of Christians. But for me, if I'm going to stay Christian in any way, shape or form, it has to in some way come back to this person and what he means and what he means to me as a human being. And so what I wanna do in this series 
is just try to, to talk about Jesus and, and to think about who Jesus might have been historically, way before we ask the question, what do we do with Jesus today, which will happen at the end of the series. But what do we know about Jesus historically? And what can we say about his life? What can we say about his ministry? What can we say about what he was doing? What can we say about his death? What can we say about the Easter moment, the Easter experience? And we're gonna walk through all of that in this series. Um, we're, we're gonna try to, and what, the reason this is important to me is when people ask me, what's the thing you've been learning most in the last couple of years? Or what, where has your faith or your theological conviction changed most in the last couple of years? And honestly, for me, it's my understanding of who Jesus was and what he was actually doing in the world. Um, scholars will talk about it, like, Jesus like this. They'll talk about the, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. And what they mean is there was this person who lived historically, some things happened, then a theology got put onto it and, and he became the Christ of faith. But what can we say? So before we get to that, I just want to spend some weeks trying to articulate how I understand the Jesus of history, what he was like and what he was up to. I'm going to put out a reading list during this um, series that you may find helpful. The series title is borrowed from a book by a guy named Marcus Borg. Any Marcus Borg fans in here? It, he's not, not Star Trek, like different, <laughs> different, just different. Marcus Borg was a historical Jesus scholar, passed away in 2015. Um, his book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, was transformative for me. Uh, I'm not following it exactly for this series. I'm sort of offering my own. If I was going to write that book, what would that book look like? And it's going to be this series. And what may happen for you during this series is as we begin to sort of, in, in broad strokes, just sort of create a portrait of who I think Jesus was, um, that figure at times may seem unfamiliar to you. Um, and it may be like, wait, 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 I, I've been around Jesus stuff. I've talked about Jesus. I've been a Christian. I've known about Jesus my entire life but the person who's emerging when we take a historical look at his life, that person doesn't seem like I didn't know about that person. So it may feel like you're meeting Jesus again, and it may feel like meeting Jesus for the very first time. Um, and I actually hope that happens for us, because I think that the actual person who lived 2,000 years ago is far more interesting than Christianity has given him credit for. And I think he was up to something far more transformative and subversive, not just for individual souls, but for the planet. He had a vision for what the world could be, and it started within his own context, and then it began to expand. I want to, get, I want to talk about that vision, um, and I want to ask, what does, it, what does it mean for us to be Christians, for people who align with this Jesus when our faith and our, our mission and our goals and so much of that that has happened in the Christian tradition look nothing like what he was actually trying to do in the world? And so I want to try to bring us back to that. So what may happen some weeks, it's gonna to happen today. The first part of this sermon may feel a little like you are in a university classroom. Um, and so it's gonna be a little, little brain focused, a little head focused. By the end, it, please don't go to sleep. I mean, if you need to, wake up for the end because that's when we're gonna come back to the heart and we're gonna to try to bring those two things together because this series is not for me just an exercise of the head. It is, I'm still committed to Jesus because of something in the heart. Um, and so I wanna bring it back to that. So the question we're going to ask today is two questions. One, how do we know about Jesus? And two, why do we even care? Does that sound like, like a good time? Um, and so I want to begin with this. How do we know about Jesus? And I want to just start by saying our knowing about Jesus, we must put the word know in quotations a little bit here because our knowing is subjective, not objective, right? What we know about Jesus comes to us through lots of different sources, 
but we don't know Jesus in the time. How many of you have been a part of anything to, to do with a time machine? Anybody? Okay, unless you went in a time machine, went back 2,000 years ago, at some point learned Aramaic, went back 2,000 years ago, met Jesus, talked to Jesus, all of our knowing about Jesus is subjective. Our knowing is filtered through lenses and frames. It is filtered through the lenses we inherited because whether we know it or not, we inherit lenses. We're born into the world and we're uh, in, a, in, in a context and people and situations and all of that frames how we see the world. Does anybody remember when your lenses began to shift a little bit and you were no longer seeing the world the way your family did or the way your friend group did or the way that maybe the, the group you were a part of your entire life, they saw it one way and you began to see it differently? And so lenses are inherited, but also lenses can end up being chosen. We, we choose, I'm gonna let that lens go because I'm not seeing as well as I should be through it. I'm gonna take a different lens. And, and our knowing about Jesus is filtered through those lenses. Our knowing about Jesus is also grounded in our interpretation of the sources that talk about Jesus. And you're gonna find this out today. Those sources, by the way, are also the interpretations of the people who wrote them, right? So everything we know about Jesus comes to us and is filtered and it's through lenses. And so we just need to be aware that when we make those claims as Christians that I know, 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 actually, you think that you think that you think that you think that you think. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong or unfaithful about that, that is the best you can do as a human being. Now, what you think may be really close to what actually happened. We don't know that, but it might be, and that's awesome. But we just have to be careful. Christians make lots of claims for objectivity, and, and we use those claims to say that our way is the only way, and our faith is the only, and what they often mean is our particular interpretation of the faith is the only, it's not even that the faith is the only way, it's the way I see the faith is the only way. And so we just want to be aware of that and say, look, we're, we're doing the best we can. We're trying, it's like we're trying to put together a puzzle that there is no puzzle box, right? There's no lid that tells you exactly where these pieces go, and we're just trying to put it together best we can. <laughs> So two things, every scholar of all stripes and backgrounds. So if, the, if a person is a scholar uh, of the historical Jesus, there are roughly two things you can say they all agree on. One is that Jesus existed, right? Jesus actually was a human being who existed in the world. Now there are chat rooms and, or, are there chat rooms anymore? I just totally, <laughs> when you log onto the internet, it goes and you get on to the internet on your dial-up connection. There are chat rooms, message boards, internet websites, people who make these claims. They're called mythicists. And they argue that Jesus is a myth. Jesus never lived. He was created by Paul. He was created by the Romans. He was created by a group of people for a purpose. Um, universally, serious scholars don't take those folks seriously. Um, serious scholars begin with the assumption that Jesus was a historical person. Now that historical person may look really different than we thought he did, but he existed. The second thing that they agree on is that Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire under the governorship of Pontius Pilate sometime in the late 20s to early 30s of the common era. That's our era. So we used to call that AD, now it's CE. Pilate, here's what we know about Pilate, very little. There is one inscription that sort of lends evidence that this is an, I mean, and you're gonna find this. When we talk about sources, it gets really, really murky. 
um, because of the context of the ancient world. But Pilate was governor of Judea between 26 and 36, which means sometime between 26 and 36, he had Jesus of Nazareth executed. That, that is really, I mean, you can try to get close because people date Jesus' birth to around the year 4 BCE because uh, Matthew says he was born during the reign of Herod. But yeah, right? Like we, we don't really know, but we can say that Jesus had to have been executed in that 10 year period because those were the 10 years Pilate was in charge of Judea, which is where Jesus lived and worked. So that's the two things scholars universally agree on. If you want to start a fight at the AAR, which is like, or the, the SBL, which is where all the, the nerdy brain scholars get together, you don't start with these two things because they're not going to fight about them. You can start fighting about what they mean, but you can't start a fight with these two things. So how do we know about Jesus? It's a great question. Thanks for asking it. Um, here, here's, the, here's the thing. We have no physical, and when I say physical, I mean archaeological evidence for Jesus. We also have no literary evidence for, for Jesus that he produced himself, right? There's no inscription, like he didn't carve into like a Jesus of Naz was here, like, like never, no archaeological evidence. Jesus never wrote anything, probably, and scholar, this, this would start a great debate among scholars. Good chance Jesus was illiterate. Most people in the ancient world were illiterate. Um, so there's a chance Jesus didn't really know how to read and write. So he didn't leave anything. Now, people will often say, that's a gotcha. If Jesus had lived, surely there would have been historical, archeological, literary evidence. He would have, I mean, the guy was a prolific teacher. Surely somebody gave him a book deal, right? At some point, but here's the truth. Everyone, this is true, not just for Jesus. It's true for everyone, most everyone who lived in the first century. We have no archeological or literary proof that anybody existed outside of the wealthy and aristocratic people who are mentioned in things like inscriptions or people who were literate and wrote. That is a very, very, very small group of people. What it means is, is that Jesus was kind of like everybody else that he lived around, the people he worked among. He wasn't very wealthy and he wasn't aristocratic. And so he did not leave a major mark archeologically or literarily on the world that he lived in. Most people throughout human history, we are, a, we are a, an anomaly. Um, they didn't have like a primitive version of Facebook, right? Where they're putting up their status, like just had avocado toast. Like that's, that did not happen in the ancient world. They, people lived, were remarkable human beings and died and left very little to no evidence behind that they were ever here. That's just how it worked for a very, very, very long time. So we have nothing from Jesus himself. I wanna give you, before we talk about what's in the Bible, I wanna give you the outside the Bible. We would, people call them non-Christian sources. If you've been around Grace Point a while, you know I have a little bit of an issue calling anything that happened before the 300s Christian, um, because that's sort of, the 300s are sort of really when Christianity became a thing. But let's just say people who weren't followers of Jesus, right? Th these are sources from people who weren't followers of Jesus. There are some minor ones, but I'm gonna give you sort of what are seen as major. And really the, the earliest major source we have is a guy named Josephus. Um, Flavius Josephus. I like to call him Flava um, when I'm referencing. <laughs> I've waited my entire <laughs> academic life to make that joke. And you laughed. I think we're done here. I have nothing left to offer you. 
Josephus uh, was a Jewish leader of resistance during the Roman War. So in the year 70, um, when, well, in the year 66, when the war broke out, Josephus was leading Jewish soldiers against Roman, uh, re- uh, the Roman Empire. At some point, he gets caught and decides, you know what? I think I'm pro-Rome now. This is great. I actually, he actually ends up believing and, and saying that one of the Roman emperors was the Messiah. And he, he goes fully pro-Rome. And what he does is he begins to write stuff. Partly, some of it he's writing to, uh, to sort of commend Jews to the Romans. And some of it he's writing to commend Romans to his Jewish siblings. And so he's got these works. One of them is called Antiquities. He wrote it around the year 93. So remember, Jesus dies somewhere between 26 and 36. He writes this in the year 93. I'm going to give you the pertinent section. Um, and, and scholars have lots of questions about it. So here's what he wrote. At this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one should call him a man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained following among many Jews and also among many Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. For he appeared to them on the third day, living again, just as the divine prophets had spoken of these things and countless other wondrous things about him. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. Do you see why scholars may have some questions about that? Like, let me just give you, if he should be called a man... He's the Messiah. He died and rose from the dead. So here's what people are wrestling with. Did Josephus write any of that? Or did a Christian scribe who was copying Josephus antiquities, because they had to do it all by hand, did they insert this in the right spot so that there would be a reference to Jesus? Most scholars think actually there was probably some of this in there. And a Christian scribe was like, yeah, he mentions Jesus and him being killed, but we know the story's better than that. And so they fill out the details. That, that's probably maybe more accurately what happened. But this is an earliest, earliest reference to Jesus in an outside the Bible source. Then the next one really is a guy named Pliny the Younger, not to be confused with Pliny the Elder, who also was a person. Um, Pliny was a Roman governor in what is today Turkey. Um, and he wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan in the year 110. And he mentions Christians as a group, but not what we would call Christians today. He's talking about people who have aligned themselves with this person, Christ, and they are causing some trouble. And they're causing trouble because they had banned public gatherings, because people were getting together and, and having ill intent toward the empire. So like nobody can get together in public. Your Super Bowl party is canceled. But Christians were still doing it. And so he writes the emperor and he's essentially saying, what do I do with this particular group of people called Christians? who get together and they sing songs to this guy named Christ as if he were a God and they, they do these rituals together. They're not really harming anybody. They're not cannibals like everybody says they are. Like, what do we do with them? Should we kill them? Should we arrest them? And the emperor basically writes back and says, don't go looking for them, but if you find them and they don't recant, recant yeah, you can kill them, right? So it's, it's sort of this policy of like, don't, don't look for them, but, but if you find them, they're a problem. And that's, that's Pliny. He, he doesn't mention Jesus, the story of Jesus. He just said, there's this group of people called Christians. They worship this guy called Christ and they're a problem. 
Around the same time in the year 115, a guy named Suetonius, who's a Roman historian, wrote a history of the lives of the first 12 Caesars. And in the story of, a, of the Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54, he mentions that there was a riot in Rome that ended up Claudius expelled the Jewish people from Rome because of a riot. And the riot, he says, was instigated because of a guy named Crestus. They misspelled his name, possibly. So scholars are like, what do we do? Okay, there's this, Christus is really close to the Greek for Christ, which is Christus, like an, a letter difference. It's a, it's a vowel. You can see how a mistake would be made. Was there a Jewish guy named Christus stirring up trouble in Rome? Or was this a group of early Christians who were stirring up trouble in Rome? Don't know. That, do you see how murky the ancient sources get? When it's like, scholars are going like, was there, should it be Christus, not Christus? Then in the year 115, there's also another Roman historian named Tacitus who writes about the emperor Nero, who during Nero's reign in the 60s, there was a fire that burned a good chunk of Rome. Um, that's the whole rumor that Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned. Have you all heard that before? So Nero and, and uh, Rome burned. It just happened to work out for Nero because he wanted to rebuild the city and make it put his imprint on it anyway. So there was rumor that the emperor started the fire that ruined so many people's lives and businesses and caused all this damage. And Nero didn't like that. And so um, here's what Tacitus says uh, around the year 64. Nero, uh, he's writing about things that happened in 64. Nero falsely accused those whom the populace call Christians. The author of this name, Christ, was put to death by the procurator Pontius Pilate while Tiberius was governor. But the dangerous superstition, though suppressed for the moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the origin of this evil, but but even in the city of Rome. So he mentions them in passing as saying, there are these people, um, Emperor Nero falsely blamed them for the fire. And this is when you have a very localized, there wasn't a big Christian persecution probably until the second century, third century, but this early persecution would have been only in Rome and Nero would have persecuted the Christians because essentially it's a cover-up. Right? We wanna make sure that I don't get blamed for the fire in Rome, we have to blame somebody. These people, everybody thinks they're weird. That's stuck for 2,000 years. And so we need to blame them. And then another kind of major source, there's a thing called the Talmud. And the Talmud is a written record of Jewish oral tradition. It was compiled between the third and fifth centuries. So we're talking way past Jesus. And it mentions Jesus, but by that point, Christianity was kind of a big deal and a major, major force in the world. So it's not really a source for the earliest layers. Do you see why when scholars are talking, I mean, the, the, the actual outside the Bible sources we have for Jesus exist, but they're complicated. It's not like there's you know, a big inscription where somebody wrote, Jesus was here. It's just not how it works. But then we come to actually what we have in the Bible in the New Testament. And here's how those sources line up. There's a guy named Paul who wrote... Um, He's attributed to writing at least 13 letters in the New Testament. Scholars have narrowed that down based on things like um, the content, what, he, what the letters are about, and based on language and style and all those sorts of things. And they've said, actually, we, we can be certain, pretty certain, that Paul wrote seven of those letters. Um, the others are, there are a few that are disputed, and then there are a few, which would be 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, which scholars universally I don't know how to say this without being pejorative. Serious scholars, universe, that's pejorative. I'm standing by it. Serious scholars will say, Paul couldn't have written those letters. They reflect a, a style of church and leadership in church and all that stuff that was well after Paul died in the 60s. 
right? And so what we have from Paul are seven letters that he wrote from the, late, or from the early 50s to the late 50s, maybe early 60s. That's all we have from Paul. The earliest one is called 1 Thessalonians. Paul didn't write 2 Thessalonians probably. The second would be a book called Galatians. And what people find when they read Paul is like, it doesn't seem like Paul knows much about Jesus. Anybody noticed that before? It's like Paul doesn't talk a lot about things that Jesus said or did. Paul has a very seemingly minimal knowledge of the historical person of Jesus. In Galatians 4.4, he writes this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law. Here's Paul's revolutionary claim about Jesus. He was born like everybody else and he was Jewish. It's Paul's big claim. He later, he also talks about Jesus. That's all he says about the birth of Jesus. He talks about Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Um, and he talks about that a lot. He talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus a ton, but he doesn't give us a lot. He talks about the, the Lord's Supper. That's a, a pretty interesting detail he gives us. But can I, can I just, can I be an apologist for Paul for just a second and say, is it really that strange that Paul doesn't give us detail. He's writing situational letters to churches going through stuff. He's writing people who probably already know stories about Jesus, right? So let's imagine I had a group of friends who we had been friends for 20 years and I'm gonna send them an email and address something going on in the friend group. Would I start the friend group, would I start every email with, I want you to know about my, me and my life and every detail I can give you about my life. I was born in the coal fields of West Virginia. Would I start there? No, because I'm, I'm assuming, I've known you for 20 years. You may know something about me. I'm not gonna give you my biography. Paul wasn't writing biographies of Jesus. He was writing letters to churches like, hey, please do not sleep with your mother-in-law. Like that's the level of stuff he's dealing with. So of course he's not. I'm gonna tell you everything I know about Jesus and then I'm gonna tell you to stop sleeping with your mother-in-law. He just cuts to the chase because parchment was rare and not heavily available. Paul, we don't know what Paul knew about the historical Jesus. My guess is way more than we've given him credit for. Way more than we've given him credit for. So that's Paul. He wrote in the 50s, maybe early 60s. And the letters we have of his in the, the Bible, there are seven of them. And they are situational letters to churches that are going through particular struggles and, and, and issues internally. He's not writing biographies of Jesus. Then we come to the gospels and that's where we get the biographies of Jesus, right? No, <laughs> the gospels aren't biographies of Jesus. I, I grew up being told the gospels are biographies of Jesus, um, but they're actually not biographies, biographies of Jesus. They were written well after the life of Jesus and they don't agree on some pretty central things about Jesus. For example, where was Jesus born? Anybody want to take a guess? Depends on who you ask. If you ask Mark where Jesus was born, you know what he's gonna say? I could not care less. I'm gonna start my story when Jesus is a grown up. I'm not gonna ask any questions about where he was born or how he was born because apparently, it, <coughs> excuse me, when Mark was writing, that was not yet a deal. Talking about Jesus' birth being different or significant in a way that other people's births weren't. Mark apparently doesn't know about it. Uh, if you talk to Matthew, and Luke, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But if you, talk, if you talk to John, Jesus was born before the beginning of time. So John wins, <laughs> right? You, you think you know where he was born, try the cosmos. Um, 
the gospels just aren't biographies. They didn't think about history in the way we think about history. If we wanna talk about history, how do we do that? We try to give a exact moment by moment, this is what happened. That's not how the ancient world thought about history. That's not what the gospel writers are doing. The gospels are not eyewitness accounts. The people who actually knew Jesus were already on the way out when the gospels were being written. Now, there may be gospels we don't know about that were written before, but we don't have them and we don't have reference to them in ancient sources. So it doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like the gospels began being written later while the people who actually would have been eyewitnesses, we don't know who wrote the gospel of Mark. We don't know who wrote any of the gospels. Tradition has assigned names to them and given them backstories. Like, well, yeah, Mark was in Rome hanging out with Simon Peter because that's what somebody said way back when, but we just don't know any of that. And actually Mark reflects more Paul's theology than any, that's a whole other sermon. Um, They're not eyewitness accounts giving exactly what Jesus was doing. The gospels actually are not about what happened as much as they're about how the authors interpreted what happened. Does that make sense? The gospels are not telling us this is exactly what happened. They're saying something happened and here's what we think it means. Or here's what it means for me and my community. Here's what it means for the, and so these gospels were being written in part to give Jewish followers of Jesus liturgy to engage with around the story of Jesus. That's why there are stories in the gospels that when you read them, you're like, I think I read a story about Elijah that went a lot like that. Yes, because copyright laws were different (laughs) in the ancient world. And it was completely acceptable to take a story about a great figure, Moses, Elijah, in the tradition, and to tell a Jesus story in which you have created Jesus as the new version of this character. Not because you're being dishonest, but because you're trying to say in the experience Maybe what Mark is saying is, I wasn't there, but I talked to some people and I have placed my faith in this person called Jesus. And in our experience, this is who Jesus was. And the only way to tell you about the the enormity of that experience is to say, have you heard about Elijah? It's a lot like that. Or have you heard about Moses? Jesus was doing something really, really similar. It's not dishonest. It is an ancient way of saying this person, this, this life, was transformative and we are running out of language. And so instead of making up just brand new words, we're going to go back into the, 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 the goodness of our tradition and we are going to show you how Jesus is not a swerve or an aberration or uh, over here, that Jesus is actually right within the tradition of Moses and Elijah. Does that make sense? This is what they're actually trying to do. They're giving us how they understood Jesus, not Jesus unfiltered. And so here's the gospels. If, if you're interested in dates, the gospel of Mark, most scholars date around the year 70 when the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Matthew is dated in the 80s. Uh, it's clear that Matthew used Mark. Luke was written sometime between the late 80s and the 110s, uh, depending on how scholars date Luke. There's a movement now that's starting to date Luke a little later. I, I tend to kind of find it convincing that Luke would have been a little later, but it's clear that Luke had Mark also, but maybe scholars think maybe Luke also had Matthew. John was probably written in the 90s. And then when you get into the 100s, you have all sorts of what we call non-canonical gospels. They didn't make the Bible. uh, And some of them are super interesting. Um, Some of them are called Gnostic gospels. There are infancy gospels. There's stuff where people are like, it'd be great to know what Jesus did when he was a little kid. Let's, okay, let's talk about the time he took some dirt and turned them into birds and they flew away. 
kind of neat, right? So people are writing, they're writing stories. None of these gospels are meant to be exactly historically what happened. They are interpretations historicalishly about who Jesus was for these particular people. So we talk about sources. We have non-Christian sources. We have Christian sources, New Testament sources. And, and then we have this other thing which nobody has ever wanted to talk to you about. And I want to talk to you about it today because I think it may be one of the most important sources. And that is the source of experience. People have experienced Jesus and their understanding of Jesus has been shaped by that experience. That's how Paul knew about Jesus, really, by the way. He has an experience, and the closest we can get to him in describing it to us is in Galatians 1 when he says, I was persecuting, Christ I was persecuting the church, but God was pleased to reveal his son in me. What does that mean, Paul? Wish we could follow up with some questions. But he had an experience where Christ was revealed in him, and it transformed his life. It's, a, it's subjective, right? It's a subjective experience. Albert Schweitzer in the late 20th century wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Anybody heard of this book before? And in that book, at the end of that book, Schweitzer has this, this little mini paragraph that was, uh, has been called the most famous theological words of the 20th century. I'm just gonna read them to you real briefly. <clears throat> He's writing about Jesus. He comes to us as one unknown. And, and the language in this is, is dated and patriarchal. I'm just gonna read you it as he wrote it. He comes to us as one unknown without a name as of old by the lakeside. He came to those men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me, and sets us to the task which he has to, which he has to fulfill in our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings, which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is." For the majority of my Christian life and upbringing, I was never invited to understand who Jesus was in my own experience. I was invited to understand Jesus through the lens of a pastor and that pastor's experience or through a church and that church's experience or through a tradition or that tradition's experience. And actually the invitation Schweitzer says is to actually figure out who Jesus is for you through your own experience. I think that's been the missing piece that the, the following Jesus, being a Christian, whatever language you want to put on it, is not a you take my word for it sort of a commitment. It is a commitment where you engage and, and you figure out how Christ comes to you. And I'm not saying that everybody should, everybody's having these really wild visions or anything like that. If that happens for you, congratulations. But somehow, we have been divorced from our own experience of Jesus so that when we talk about Jesus, we are not talking about an experience that we have known. We are talking about somebody, who told, somebody we've been told about. Does that make sense? And I think for 2000 years, Christians have had experiences of the presence, the person, the reality of Jesus, whatever language you wanna use for that, that have been shaping and transformative. And so I would say this, um, for most of us, I really think that our goal in following Jesus probably isn't just an intellectual exercise. We feel some connection to Jesus because there seems to be something about him, something about his life, something about the way that in the pages of scripture, 
Even though we're reading interpretive portraits, we're not reading literal history, we're getting interpretive pictures. But what must it mean that when they wanted to tell the story of Jesus, they told a story about somebody who pushed back every boundary and every barrier to the other? There's this moment in the Gospel of Mark in chapter one where a man with a skin disease comes to Jesus. And normally this is a person who should stand on the outskirts of the city and be declaring their uncleanness so that nobody gets near them. This man comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And we'll talk about miracles at some point in healings in this series. If you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I'm willing. And Jesus reaches out and touches this person. What must it have been about that experience of Jesus that when they wanted to tell the story, they could only tell the story of a person who again and again pushed beyond the boundaries and barriers, beyond the thing that this is the other and we should not go across this bridge to the other. Again and again, we find Jesus not only seeing others, but we find Jesus reaching out and touching them. We see Jesus again and again, bringing people who were told their entire lives, you have to be at a distance from all things holy because you are in your body unholy. We find Jesus pulling them close and saying, who told you that rubbish? Who told you that you are unholy? The very holiness of the divine lives in you. You are in the image of God. There is not a thing unholy about who God has made you to be in the world. I think probably we're still interested in Jesus because there's something about that life and that way that we find compelling, something about that life and those stories that give us a sense of hope, that that somehow there is a way to be beautifully and fully human, a way that does not shrink back in fear, but a way that leans into the beauty and goodness of everybody and everything around you and sees what the world could be and begins to go about creating that world right in the middle of the old one. I think Jesus offers us a glimpse into what is humanly possible. And I think that's where we lost Jesus. We so desperately wanted him to be God that we forgot he was human. We so desperately wanted his divinity that we forgot that what made him compelling was his humanity. That in the story of Jesus, we see that maybe just maybe a new world could actually exist. A world of peace and justice and compassion. Maybe if enough of us got together, we could move the needle in the direction of justice. I think in the story of Jesus, maybe the reason I keep coming back is because it reminds me that the way to the divine isn't found by abandoning our humanity, but by entering fully into it. Are you looking for God? Don't look at the sky. Look within your own heart. That's where you'll find the divine. That's where Jesus found the divine. That's how Jesus mediated the divine to others. was not by saying, I have something you need. It was by saying, I'm going to help you become aware of something you have. And whatever the word God means, because I know that we could have a really fun conversation about what the word God means. But that for us, the reality that we're talking about when we talk about God, it feels like the goodness and love that we have known in the human life of Jesus. In this life that was human and yet also in it, we touch in some mysterious, beautiful way the divine and we are invited to touch the divine in ourselves. 
I often tell people, I, it's not that I did not give up on Jesus. It's that Jesus, I don't think ever let me go. Because something in these stories, something in these beautiful interpretive portraits we have been given by our ancestors presents to me a human life that I want to know and live. And it's a life that I think the church has badly gotten wrong in many of our eras and many of our mistakes. And what I find when I talk to people who are so wounded and harmed by Christianity and by the church is I, I never find somebody who's like, that Jesus, if he were here, I'd punch him. I never find that. What I find is people who went to a church looking for what they found in the text and what they found in the church and what they saw in the text did not match up or what they knew in their experience, what they knew in their bones about who Jesus was and what they met at the church did not match. And it seemed like what they were being offered at the church was a step back and a step down and not really good. One of my favorite writers um, who passed away just a couple years ago, John Shelby Spong, he wrote a brilliant book called um, Jesus for the Non-Religious. If you're new to deconstructing your faith, do not start with that book, please. <laughs> I made that mistake once and gave it to a friend very early on and learned that this is, this, this, you need to learn, don't dive off the diving board until you're swimming a little. Um, and this is, it's a brilliant book, challenging. But in the beginning of the book, he writes a, a bit of poetry, I would call it. It's called A Lament of a Believer in Exile. And I wanted to just end with this today because when I read this <clears throat> 15 years ago for the very first time, still pretty early on in my journey, I saw so much of what I was experiencing, the longing I had for the person that I was familiar with called Jesus that I could not find in church and I could not find in most Christian conversation or most Christian books or most engagement with the Bible. There was this in my bones, I knew there was this Jesus that I couldn't find anywhere. And so if this resonates with you, if this is something you're like, yeah, I can see myself in there, we're, we're going to try to uncover the Jesus he's trying to uncover in this series. Here's what he writes. Oh, Jesus, where have you gone? When did we lose you? Was it when we became so certain that we possessed you, that we persecuted Jews, excommunicated doubters, burned heretics, and used violence and war to achieve conversion? Was it when our first century images collided with expanding knowledge? Or when biblical scholars informed us that the Bible does not really support what we once believed? Was it when we watched your followers distorting people with guilt, fear, bigotry, intolerance, and anger? Was it when we noticed that many who called you Lord and who read their Bibles regularly also practiced slavery, defended segregation, approved lynching, abused children, diminished women, and hated the LGBTQIA community? Was it when we finally realized that the Jesus who promised abundant life could not be the source of self-hatred or the one who encourages us to grovel in life-destroying penitence? Was it when it dawned on us that serving you would require the surrender of those security-building prejudices that masquerade as our sweet sickness? We still yearn for you, Jesus, but we no longer know where to seek your presence. Do we look for you in those churches that practice certainty? Or are you hiding in those churches that so fear controversy that they make unity a God and stand for so little that they die of boredom? Isn't that a great line? 
He often says uh, in his writings that churches will die before boredom way before they die of controversy. Can you ever be found in those churches that have rejected the powerless and the marginalized, the lepers and Samaritans of our day, those you called our brothers and sisters and siblings? Or must we now look for you outside ecclesiastical settings where love and kindness expect no reward, where questions are viewed as the deepest expressions of trust? Is it even possible, Jesus, that we Christians are the villains who killed you, smothering you underneath literal Bibles, dated creeds, irrelevant doctrines, and dying structures? If these things are the source of your disappearance, Jesus, will you then reemerge if these things are removed? Will that bring resurrection? Or were you, as some now suggest, never more than an illusion? By burying and distorting you, were we simply protecting ourselves from having to face that realization? I still seek to possess what I believe you are, Jesus. Access to an embodiment of the source of life, the source of love, the ground of being, a doorway into the mystery of holiness. It is through that doorway that I desire to walk. Will you meet me there? Will you challenge me, guide me, confront me, reveal your truth to me and in me? Finally, at the end of this journey, Jesus, will you embrace me inside the ultimate reality that I call God in whom I live and move and have my being. It's a Jesus I wanna be a part of, <clears throat> a Jesus who's moving us beyond the boundaries and barriers and into a full and abundant and free humanity that sees difference not as a threat, but as a good to be celebrated, that looks at a world that is on fire and says there may be hope for it yet. That's the Jesus we're gonna to seek to uncover in this series. <laughs>